Greetings. Uh, a good morning, and so thanks for dealing with our clunky moving mics wherever else we're trying to do here uh, as we try to make it a little clearer sounding for you on, uh, on a Sunday. So uh, for those of you who are joining at home, members of Genesis, uh, you know what we're doing. Uh, for those of you who are new or are watching this for the first time, uh, welcome to Genesis, I guess I could call it. Uh, that was Matt Brantner, who was leading us in worship. Before that was Matt Akers, um, two of our elders of the church. My name is Hans. Uh, I get to serve as one of the pastors here. And like I say to uh, anybody, if you gather with us on a Sunday, if you're looking for a church, there's really no better place to be than where we are right now. Uh, so uh, we are just, we're grateful for you. We're grateful for where we've been. Um, and even during this time, uh, we are grateful for what the Lord is doing in our midst, and what I'm hearing uh, He's doing through you guys and in you guys, and so uh, thank you for that. We're starting a new book this morning. We're starting the book of James, and I want to give a little bit of a reason why we're starting the book of James. We actually didn't change our plan because of the circumstances that we're all dealing with. Uh, in fact, we just kind of kept on with our plan, which was, uh, to go from Galatians, understanding that our faith in Jesus is it. Jesus saves us. Faith is what we place in Jesus and in his work, um, and that's it. So we don't work for our salvation, but at the same time, working is important. And so we have these two ideas together uh, of faith on one side and work on the other, and we wanted to go into the book of James, which is heavy on how our faith works itself out. Uh, so Galatians series was called Faith Not Works. The James series is called Faith Works. Get it? Right? Uh-huh. We're so crafty here at Genesis giving you things. So um, we're going to do—and I was talking to a buddy uh, last night. I bit off way more than I could chew in the book of James in regard to the chunks of passage, and there's a reason for that, uh, but I did. This is a long passage to go through because really the first two sections of James, first two sermons we'll do, set the table for everything else. Also, uh, we usually have been preaching in the ESV. We don't have like a standard translation, but we usually preach out of the ESV. I'm actually going to be preaching out of the CSB or the Christian Standard Bible uh, this time because last year, uh, this is the book that my family tried to memorize. So in order to help my brain out, we are going to be uh, going from the CSB and so for that, for those it might, that might confuse, that's why you might go, why in the world are these verses different? So I want to start just by reading James 1. We're actually going to be in verses 1 through 18. I'll do some looking at you because some of it's in my head, some of it isn't. But it starts like this. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes dispersed abroad, greetings. Consider it a great joy my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously 
and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. You hear the thunder? We'll see how this goes uh, when the power goes out, and we'll figure out how to live stream with no power. Uh, And it will be given to him, but let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea, driven and tossed by the wind. That person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways. Let the brother of humble circumstances boast in his exaltation, but let the rich boast in his humiliation, because he will pass away like a flower of the field. For the sun rises, and together with the scorching wind, dries up the grass. Its flower falls off, and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich will wither away while pursuing his activities. We go back to trials in verse 12. Blessed is the one who endures trials. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. No one undergoing a trial should say, I am being tempted by God. Since God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone, but each person is tempted when he is drawn away by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, who doesn't change like shifting shadows. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Like I said, it is a lot this morning, so let's pray and go to the Lord and just ask him to make sense of this. Father, as we get into James chapter 1, we ask that you guide us, that you direct us, that this be your truth for our hearts. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Well, all of us are experiencing currently some type of trial, some type of difficult time. Maybe maybe that's you. Uh, I'm sure, and it's not just about where life is right now, but it's also just about what we have experienced, how we're walking through life, what this feels like, what is going on. And so when we have that, we go, man, oh man, this is different. People lose their jobs, furloughed from their jobs. When their their, uh, income is uh, unstable, when they're not sure what's going to come next, when they're not sure if they're going to have food, Whatever it might be, trials, struggle, issue are things that we all deal with. We all deal with. In fact, if you kind of do Zoom calls with our community groups, one of the questions that we'll be asking even this week is, just what has been one of the most significant trials you've ever gone through? Uh, we had a child who uh, had surgery at 24 hours old. 24 hours old. Like, and that's the, the thing that does for you is you can't change that, right? I'm, I'm a parent. I can't have the surgery. I have to watch, endure. And even though a baby at a day old doesn't know what's going on, doesn't remember that, that whole experience is something that is stuck in my mind. Some have dealt with a spouse who doesn't know the Lord and how to walk through life with a spouse who doesn't know the Lord. Some deal with persecution. Uh, We had one of our brothers uh, from another country just kind of chime in, and a country where if you follow the Lord Jesus, and you proclaim the Lord Jesus, and you testify uh, of the Lord Jesus in these places, you will be persecuted. You might even die. 
trials are something all of us experience. And yet James, in this first bit of time, is going to talk to us about how this works. Now, James is an interesting book because it's kind of like Proverbs. That's what a lot of people will say. It's like Proverbs in that it's just, I bet if you just kind of recall, if you're even familiar with the Bible at all, you're going to think about some phrases or some verses, and a lot of them come out of James because James is pithy, right? Pithy. My kids try and spell that right now, pithy. Um, But James is a pithy book that has some idea of a, uh, like Proverbs. So you think true religion, right? If I say true religion, you go, oh, we don't know if we're in their distress, keeping oneself unstained from the world. Uh, you let your yes be yes and your no be no, which is actually a citation of Jesus, but it's also in James. Uh, the tongue, watch the tongue. Faith without works is dead. Uh, that's from the book of James. Not many of you should be teachers because you know that we will uh, uh, get a, a stricter judgment. That's James. Don't make plans without saying, if the Lord wills, we would live and do this or that. That's James. James is a memorable book, but it's also a hard book to outline. I had a friend, Adam, who said it like this. Outlining the book of James is like outlining a text message conversation. And you know what you're talking about with your friend, but as I try to go back and look at that, and I'm like, how in the world? They're talking about how are you doing and how's your family right here? And then they immediately, from their jump to, what'd you have for dinner? And then they go into what's your favorite Simpsons episode. And then they go into what's your favorite board game. And then they go back to tell me about your kid. How's he doing? Like there's so much in the book of James where you're reading it from book to book. And it's not like Paul. Paul kind of lays it out. Here's my point. Here's how I'm flowing. This is what I'm trying to say. And then you get to James. And you go, I don't have any idea. In fact, if you just lined out people's outlines and commentaries on the book of James, what you will likely find is that everybody has a different take on how to organize it. They don't have a different take on uh, a lot on what it means or what the themes are, but on how to organize it, they get really confused. Suffering, rich and poor, doing what your faith says you should do, teaching, speaking, living rightly. These are all significant themes in James. But he's going to kind of move through it like you're reading just this kind of two-way text conversation, but you only have the text from one person. That's what it's going to be like. So this morning, like I said, it's a big chunk because I want us to see how this whole theme might thread together dealing with the idea of trial, struggle, frustration. Um, And so that's where we'll be. I actually have six ideas here. Six is a lot. So we'll see how I do. Wish me luck. Pray for me. For my kids who are listening, who are always like, when's dad going to be done? We're getting there, okay? We're going to start with James, a transformed brother. And brother has a double meaning because most would look at this James as James, the leader of the Jerusalem church, James, the half-brother of Jesus, born to Mary after Jesus' birth, which is kind of cool, isn't it? To think that somebody is actually writing who believes that their brother is the Lord. I don't believe that about my brother. My brother actually provided for us a light. It's staring me at the face right now. If you ever see little halos in my glasses, that's from my brother. I do not believe my brother is the Lord. You probably don't believe my brother's the Lord. And my brother certainly doesn't believe that I am the Lord. But James, who didn't believe at first, came to a point of belief in the Lord Jesus. So we're going to start just with that first verse. James, servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And that statement alone lets us know that God can change anybody. Even a brother who doesn't want to have anything to do with his brother. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe it's John 7, 5 where we read that his brothers did not believe in him. But did see him resurrected, 1 Corinthians 15, 7, Acts 1, 14. There are places where we see that. So James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So James has a lot of Jewish undertones in his book, but it is also incredibly Christian. Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, and he recognizes the Lord Jesus Christ. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to his audience, the 12 tribes, which lets us know that this is kind of a Jewish book written to Jews who now follow Jesus, to the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. That's the idea we get of diaspora, the scattered people. So James is our author. He's been changed by Jesus. It's going towards not just one congregation, but to Jews who are scattered abroad outside of Jerusalem. And he brings greetings. And I just want from this first verse for you to remember this. God is always moving and he's always transforming. Sometimes we skip over the introduction and we don't realize all that's gone on. But James, somebody who did not believe in the Lord Jesus, even though he was his brother, did not follow him, did not trust him, then gets to a point where he realizes there is no other Lord but Jesus. So all I want you to do is you think about James 1.1 is go, God can change anybody. God can change anybody. And he did that with James. Now James is writing and instructing how to live for the Lord. And the people that he's writing to seem to have a significant issue with trials, situations that come up that are causing them to struggle. And what he's going to say is this. Consider trials a joy. Consider trials a joy. We can go back. Uh, consider trials a joy. And so that's his main idea, and that thread is going to carry us through the rest of this passage this morning. Consider trials a joy. No one wants to do that. When we're having a bad day, a bad time, when we're frustrated, our first response is not generally to go, this is awesome. I am so glad that I'm being persecuted. I'm so glad that I'm struggling. I am so glad that I lost my job. I am so glad that I'm sick. I'm so glad that I'm poor. I'm so glad that I'm lost all my wealth. We don't say those kinds of things, but yet that's where James immediately goes is to say, consider trials a joy. Now look at how he says it. Consider it a pure joy or a great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience, whenever means whenever you experience various trials. He's not even trying to define it for you. Consider it a great joy whenever you experience various trials. Why? Because the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its full effect so that you might be mature and complete, lacking nothing. So we'll go back to verse 2. Consider it a great joy whenever you experience various trials. Joy, then, is the proper response 
to our testing. Testing produces endurance. And what's endurance? I mean, we should know this, but it's the ability to run, to move, especially for us under pressure. So if you want to be strengthened, and we see this in how the world works, right? We might, the world might say this, no pain, no gain, right? They kind of talk about that in regard to who you are and how you operate. Go get it yourself, be awesome. What James is saying is when you experience a trial, and that trial, he doesn't even give it a duration, does he? He's not like, after three months, go ahead and figure it out or move on with life. Whenever you experience various trials, consider it a joy because you know that this is producing endurance. And endurance is our ability to run the race. This is what I say. I was actually talking to a friend of mine in a community group about this. Uh, is that we have this way as we get older, uh, even, even as believers, as we get older in the faith, where we look down on people who are younger, who are struggling with things that were like, oh, just you wait. Just you wait until you have kids. Just you wait until your kids become teenagers. Just you wait until you have grandkids. Just you wait until whatever. Just wait until you're trying to make ends meet when you retire. Like, and so we have this way of always kind of looking down on someone who hasn't experienced what we've experienced as if they're negative or wrong or God's not actually having them in that situation. And what we neglect is the fact that God brings all of us through trials to produce endurance. And the thing that God might have you in right now is not the same thing that he might have your 9-year-old, 10-year-old, or 11-year-old son or daughter going through. Not the same thing a 20-year-old's going through. Not the same thing a 25-year-old's going through. Not the same thing an 85-year-old's going through. God is the gardener. And he's the one that knows what we need and when we need it. And so what James broadly says here is consider a joy whenever you, whatever that might be. And so if you're in middle school or you're in high school and people get all, all bent out of shape, out of, out of relationship issues, that's a big deal for them. And so what do you do? You instruct about how this actually produces endurance. That you would not be able to run the way you ran without being able to do that. And then what does he say about endurance? But let, it, let it run the course. Let it do what it needs to do in you in verse 4 so that you may be mature and complete. Now, this doesn't mean that on this side of eternity, you're going to be mature and complete and lack nothing in regards to, like, you still want the Lord to return. But it's going to produce in you the strength that you need to live the life that God has put before you. Which means in times of testing and trial, our first question is not, how do I reduce this? How do I remove this? But it's, Lord, what are you going to do through this? How can you use this for your purposes to strengthen me? How can you use this in a way that makes me more like you so that in 10, 15, 20, 25, 30, 40 years, I can run more strongly? I can run better. Because we don't even actually know what the trial in the moment is doing. This is the thing. We think trials might be doing one thing when God's doing a totally different thing. And I remember experiencing this when I was working out. So I turned 30 and I was like, you know what? I should probably consider working out. I think we were, uh, Courtney was pregnant with our third boy and we were trying to figure out what to do with life. And like, how do I, how, I was like, I got to be able to run and play with my kids. 
And so I started to exercise at this cool little gym. I loved it. My friends from the church were there. Other people were there. I still keep up with some of these folks. Uh, and I was just doing that, doing like lifting or doing whatever they make me do, jumping, running, blah, 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 running up bleachers, the kind of stuff you hate. And in Baton Rouge, there's this kind of, there's lakes around LSU. And so you'd go run the lakes and there'd be a four mile path. There'd be a six mile path. There'd be a little less than a four mile path if you didn't take a certain route. And I remember after working out at that gym for some time, I went and tried to run the lakes. And I ran the fastest four miles I've ever run before, which for most people, they can still beat me at, okay? Don't care about that. You're all faster than me, and that's fine. And that's when you get to realize what something like this is doing. I had no idea that what I was doing, you know, in a gym, in a class, was producing in me so that when I ran four miles, I was able to run four miles. In the same way, you have no idea what your current experience is producing in you so that in five years from now, you don't tire out and you don't tap out. They're everywhere, but they produce something in us. But knowing that and operating the right way in that requires wisdom. And that's why we move to this idea of wisdom. The trials require wisdom, verses 5 through 8. And that's, I think, how these two paragraphs relate to one another. So consider it joy. But to consider it joy, we really need to think differently, don't we? And so we don't just go, oh, this is how it is. So trials require wisdom. This is how it goes. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, and that might be in how to handle this trial, he should ask God who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly without pretense. He's going to give it to you. But let him ask in faith without doubting. Doubters like the surging sea. So what we see here, if you lack wisdom in how to properly navigate where you are in life, then you ask God. But you ask God believing that he will give it. Because if not, what are you? You're blown and tossed. You're like the sea that's moving up and down, and you just move along with it rather than steady as she goes, focus on the Lord, knowing what God can give to you. The person who doesn't believe, we read in verse 7, that person should not expect to receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded and unstable in all his ways, meaning this, that you think one way here, you think another way there. And being double-minded is going to become really important with James, even as he talks about how we speak. He'll say this, With the tongue we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in God's likeness. Right? What is that? Double-tongued. So what he's saying is you're going through life and you need wisdom in situations. You can't go, well, God, give me wisdom, I guess. You don't just pay lip service to it, but you need it. You need it so that you can live rightly, so that you can understand what God would have for you, so that you can be seen as whole. In fact, Doug Moo, and I use Doug Moo a lot. Douglas Moo is a commentator. Um, but he talks about this whole first section is about this pursuit of spiritual wholeness that we need to walk upright and we want to be have whole and good lives for God that aren't duplicitous, that aren't divided. But in order to do that, right, we have trial here. God, I want to live right in the trial, so I need you to teach me how to do this so that we can operate properly. And then there's a bit of an illustration. Consider it trials of joy. Trials require wisdom. 
And then this idea in verses 9 through 11, that wealth and poverty focus us on God's economy. Now, when I say God's economy, I don't mean God's money. I mean the way that God operates. Now, one of the biggest trials, one of the biggest things that operates in our heads is rich-poor. And this is a theme throughout the book of James. Rich and poor. How do the rich operate? How do poor operate? Do they clash together? When we get to favoritism in chapter 2, and he's like, suppose a rich person comes in, and then a poor person comes in, and you prefer the rich over the poor. Haven't you divided? And there's that idea again, making distinctions. So what's a significant trial that many people suffer through or struggle through? Well, not having enough money, not knowing where the paycheck's going to come from, not knowing where food's going to come from. This was a significant issue that James was dealing with. And he was trying to help his audience understand that as you're going through this, so you can actually kind of see God's wisdom applied, right? God's wisdom applied to the situation. So how do you wisely approach a situation between rich and poor when everybody wishes they were rich? And I'll say this, let the brother of humble circumstances, and in this instance would be that without means, boast in his exaltation. We'll see what that means further in chapter two, but he goes, don't you recognize that God loves and cares for the poor? Don't you see that he has gifted them to be rich in faith. So let the brother in humble circumstances boast, but let the rich boast in his humiliation because he'll pass away like a flower of the field. So we have a contrast here in verse 9 and verses 9 and 10. Let the poor boast that God has made much of him. Let the rich boast that that wealth could leave in a second. That is applying godly wisdom to a trial that many people struggle through. You see that? So trials produce endurance. You need wisdom to understand it. Wealth and poverty is one way that everybody thinks about and deals with that requires us to use the wisdom of God or else we'll think about it wrong. Because rich want to just keep their wealth, poor just want to get rich, and we miss what God might be doing. But recognize this in verses 11. Uh, I think it's 11 and, oh yeah, for the sun rises and together with the scorching wind dries up the grass, its flower falls off, and its beautiful appearance perishes. In the same way, the rich person will wither away while pursuing his activities. Now, we don't like to think of it like that. And I would guess that many people even watching this have means you're doing okay. We never like to think of ourselves as rich, but quite honestly, if you go to like globalrichlist.com, almost everybody listening to this is sitting in like the top 1% of global wage earners. So we're all, we're all abundantly often provided for. Not everybody, but we often have far more than we need. And what James is saying is you better realize that that can leave in an instant. It can be gone. And if we don't live life with that perspective, then when we lose net worth, when the housing market crashes, when companies lose 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, and 80% of their value, when the company that we work for tanks, its stock price tanks, and that's all that we have for our retirement, and we lose all of our value, what do we see? Wealth on this side of eternity does not last. So the Christian should have the proper approach. The Christian should understand, when I'm going through life, 
My goal is not to become rich. I want to be a good steward, but it's not to become rich. Riches leave. I don't want that. I don't want to put all of my hope in something that leaves. Jesus says the same thing. And if you don't hear Jesus talking like, like throughout all that James says, you're missing it. Because James is using the Sermon on the Mount, which is what we're memorizing right now. He's quoting Sermon on the Mount. He's quoting teachers of Jesus. Remember when Jesus said, uh, hey, there's a, a fool, like the rich fool, who just stored all his goods in his barn, and then he died? And Jesus calls that person a fool, for tonight your soul will be asked of you, exacted from you. This is exactly what James is saying. If you want to understand your current situation rightly, you need to understand what God's doing. Being rich in faith is much more significant than being rich in gold or rich in cash or rich in whatever. That's what we want. And that's what James says in chapter 2. So again, this whole idea, James is transformed. Consider trials and joy. Trials require wisdom and then applied to a unique situation. The source of trials often with having or not having should focus us on the way God operates, not the way the world operates. And that's what James calls wisdom from above. He'll actually say it like this, but the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving. Leaves as gentle and anger, full of mercy and good fruit. Might have gotten that a little wrong. So we need a different kind of wisdom if we're going to operate in life as God would have us operate. And the reason I'm latching all these together with trials is because when we get back to verse 12, what do we see? But that trials produce life. And this is how James says it. Blessed is the one who endures trials. Because when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. Blessed, happy is the one who endures. Because our endurance is rewarded by God. The blessing is God's crown of life for a race won. You hear echoes, right, of this in how Paul speaks. I've run the race. I've run it. I run to receive a prize. That's what James wants. But he recognizes that the race is full of trials. It's not a happy-go-lucky race. As you live your life, you will experience pain and suffering and hurt and loss and death and disease. And in all of those things, we should be looking to what God is doing. And we should keep that in mind. I talk to you guys sometimes about prayers I pray for myself. One of the prayers that I pray for myself all the time is that I would not put hope in this world, but I would put hope in the world that is to come. Because I, like you, can get caught up with shiny things, fixing things, hating broken things, replacing old things, as if this life is all that matters. And I don't live for the life that is to come, for the reward that is waiting that through patient endurance in what God has put me, I can receive the prize God gives. Then there's a way that we often abuse our trials. So I'll say as God uses trials, we abuse trials. And this is where I realized that 13 through 18 could have been its own sermon, but I was too caught up in it. Now, 13 through 18, we're getting it here too. Every one of these verses could be their own sermon, but we don't want James to be four years long. Well, I didn't. Maybe you do. 
When you go through a trial, you become tempted, don't you? Our flesh can operate in that trial, and it can pursue what we talk about with the flesh in Galatians, self-preservation, self-exaltation. It focuses on us looking good, being right, living life like we want. And so when James says no one undergoing a trial should say I'm being tempted by God, notice the language change. There might be a test that comes that is from God, but then our flesh distorts it and turns it into a temptation. And now we're looking for outs. How do I get out of this trial? Or how do I make this trial feel better? We can run to addiction. We can run to computers. We can run to alcohol. We can run to drugs. We can run to friends, family, anything to try and numb the experience that is actually producing the endurance that we need. So you don't abuse the trial by somehow claiming God is doing something that he's not. What do we see? No, no, no. You are the cause of mishandling the trial. It's in us. Sin is in us, which is great because next week we're going to talk about humbly receiving the implanted word, which means that in order to be transformed, something has to actually come in and change us from the inside out because what's inside of us wants to abuse, misuse, misunderstand, and self-preserve in times of testing. But that's not what God would have. And we get to see in verse 15, after desire has conceived, which comes from us, it gives birth to sin, and sin gives birth to death. You can follow the train. There might be a trial that we're going through that our flesh uses as a temptation. Then we blame shift. We go, oh, God's doing this. God brought the temptation. James goes, no, 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 God doesn't do that. You do that. That's what we do. The word uh, in theology, or really just in any study, but anthropology, how do we work? This is part of anthropology. How do we work? We make everything sinful. Our sinful nature attaches to it and tries to make it something that God had not designed for it to be. We battle between the flesh and the spirit if we are in Christ, and we live for ourselves and our purposes. And then he tells us, James says, no, 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 this is how God works. Every good and perfect gift comes from above. This is how God gives. Even a trial produced rightly through faith, that's from the Lord. It produces in us something that he wants. God doesn't tempt. We are tempted by our own desires. God is a giver of good gifts. And then listen to how James puts our hope where he attaches us in verse 18. By his own choice, he gave us birth by the word of truth. What did he just say was in us? Sin. What does that produce? Death. By his own choice, he gave us what? Birth. So sins in us and produces death. God to us and for us produces death birth by the word of truth the gospel of our salvation that jesus the lord jesus as james calls him died for us that we might be a kind of first fruits that we are those who are redeemed the whole world will be redeemed by god new heaven new earth new creation that all is coming but through the life that we have we are a first fruits 
And remembering that, cycle back to trials, means that when we're going through tough times and we're not even sure how to get out of it, we're stuck and our head hurts and our heart hurts and we're exhausted and we have nowhere to go and we are not sure what's going to happen, we look to what God is doing. I would encourage anybody here who's going through a trial, which is everybody here, to kind of dissect it and go backwards and go, what's going on here and what could God be doing? Such an important question to ask or else we just live our lives exhausted, tired, hurting, and not realizing that God is working something else out.